This is your host, Anjana Kaushik Taluri, and you're listening to the Stories of Women in Science podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode. Our guest speaker today is one of my biggest role models. A fun fact, her wedding rings were sent to the Hubble and they flew around the Earth 200 times. Keep listening to learn more about this intriguing story. Time for a little science. Everything that we're familiar with, including you and me, makes up a mere 5% of the universe. The rest is made up of dark matter, which accounts for about 25% of the universe, and dark energy, which accounts for about 70% of the universe. While we're still attempting to find out what dark matter and dark energy really are and what they're made up of, one thing that we do know is that dark matter binds galaxies together. It's in fact the reason why galaxies exist. Dark energy, on the other hand, drives the universe apart and causes it to expand faster. How much dark matter exists in the universe and where is it located? What is the nature of the mysterious dark energy? What is the large-scale structure of our universe, and how did this structure form and evolve? What is the fate of our universe and its expansion? These are some of the questions that Dr. Natha Bakal researches. Professor Natha Bakal is a preeminent observational cosmologist and is the Eugene Higgins Professor of Astrophysics at Princeton University. She was born in Israel. After completing her bachelor's and master's degree, she received her PhD from Tel Aviv University in 1970 and then moved to Princeton University. Dr. Bacall has held many prestigious positions, such as the first head of the Science Program Selection Office and the chief of the General Observer Branch at the Hubble Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. She's the recipient of the prestigious Wakula Medal, Painja Poskin Award, the Bennett McWilliams Award, an honorary Doctor of Science degree from Ohio State University, Century Lecturer of the American Astronomical Society, and member of various NASA, NSF, NAS, and Congressional Science Committees. Hi, Dr. Bacall. It's so nice to see you and such an honor to have you here today. Hi, wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. You're one of my biggest role models, and I'm excited that I get to learn about your story and share it with our listeners today. Um, so I'm going to start with what inspired you to get into science and more specifically astrophysics? Yeah, uh, so when I went, when I finished high school, um, I uh, decided to go into physics and math. Actually, my first uh, desire was to go to medical school. My mother was a nurse and I would visit her in the hospital sometimes after school. And I always was admired by, you know, the medical doctors and what they were doing and saving life. But at that time I was in growing up in Israel, there were no spaces in medical school. It was just beginning and there was no opportunities to medical school. So, and what I loved in high school was physics and math. I enjoyed it. I had a fantastic uh, science teacher and I, he really made science very exciting. And I just loved being able to 
find out questions about how things work and it was precise and clear uh, and clean and I loved it. So I majored in physics and math. There was no astronomy in Israel at that time. And then I started my master's degree also in physics, in nuclear physics at the Weizmann Institute. And then I met my husband, John, uh, who came to visit in Israel. He was American at Caltech. And then we were married and I moved to Caltech with him. I finished my PhD there. And there at Caltech, which had a fantastic astronomy department, astronomy and physics, but I started hearing um, all the big names at that time who did astronomy, like Martin, uh, Martin uh, Schmidt, and even Zwicky was still there. And I thought, wow, those questions about the universe sounded like so exciting. So I slowly switched into astrophysics. Wow, that is so great. And to think that you've met the people that we study about in textbooks, that's crazy. <laughs> it, it is. I still think about, you know, especially somebody like Zwicky, you know, it's not a historical figure. We talk about him for dark matter and for, you know, I always teach my students. And I still remember meeting him when I was a graduate student. I was in the lab there in the basement doing some measurements. And he was a very old guy at that time. He would still come, stop by and ask what I was doing. And we sit and talk a little bit. And, you know, I, at that time, I didn't realize he was such a big historical name, but he was very nice to me. That's amazing. And speaking of, you know, historical figures, one of your closest friends and colleagues was Dr. Vera Rubin. And yes. for our listeners today, you know, who are not familiar with Dr. Vera Rubin, she was an American astronomer who studied galaxy rotation rates, and she showed that galaxies mostly contain dark matter. So could you share with our listeners some of your fondest memories of her? Yes, Vera Rubin was such a dear uh, colleague and friend of mine for many, many years. I mean, for dec few, a few decades. And... Um, I, I, there are so many things I love about her, just about everything. She is really a remarkable person. But I, I will just mention two kind of broad things. One is her love of astronomy. She just loved the astronomy. She, she didn't do astronomy just to figure out this or that or do it because it's a job or a career. She just loved the field, loved trying to, to go to the telescope to observe, loved looking at the night sky, loved doing the measurements of the galaxies, rotation curves, as you talked about, loved figuring out what happened. And every time I would talk to her or she would talk to anybody about what she was doing or what I was doing when she asked me about astronomy, you can see the, the shine in her eyes, the twinkle in her, in her eyes, the smile on her face, it just expressed such amazing curiosity and enthusiasm about the field that I rarely see in other, you know, all astronomers like what they do, but what she had was way beyond it. It was, it was infectious. You know, you talk to her, and you come out feeling even more excited about your own work. She asked me about my own work and she, oh, this is so wonderful and this and that. And then you come out feeling even more excited than you were before. So it was some 
real true deep love of astronomy and that was infectious for to everybody who talked to her. So that was one thing that, that sort of remains with me about her. The other thing is more about her personality and, and, and that's why so many people loved her. She was a very, in addition to being obviously a fantastic scientist and discovered you know, the, the measure of the rotation, flat rotation curves and dark matter, she was a very warm, kind, supportive person to everybody and very positive, no matter what the circumstances were. Even though her life story, starting as a woman in science many, many years ago, had a lot of difficulties and bumps on the road, she never lost face. She never lost her enthusiasm. Not that she didn't get mad at some people or other, but it never affected her. She was always positive. She was always looking to the future. She always overcame all those difficulties without, without feeling very bad about it, without becoming very negative. Um, and, and that's something that, that, again, not many people have. She was just very focused on doing what she loved, helping other young scientists and women scientists, which was one big focus in her life, and her family, and always very positive. So I always remember that. That is so inspiring. And it's, it's really great to hear from you, who was her closest friend and colleague for so many decades. Um, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. On my answering machine, on my phone, I have a call from her from a few years ago when she was still okay. Uh, she called, just left a message to chat a little bit. Uh, uh, and, and I kept it and I still have it. And I think it's so sweet, you know, sometimes when I think about her, I go to that phone message and I just listen to her and it's like, she's still there. That is so true. Um, the technology that we have yes. helps preserve not only memories, but also, you know, them as a person. Exactly. It really helps preserve it more than just pictures. It, it makes it kind of more alive. Yeah. So um, we talked a little bit about your husband, Dr. John Bacall, um, yes. who was also a pioneer in the field. And he was instrumental in the development and the launch of the Hubble. Yes. So with you being heavily involved in the field, how did you find a balance between work and family life? Uh, I must say I did not find it very difficult. Now again, it's looking back, it's many years ago, so maybe you always see the more positive sides and you know maybe there were some difficult times, but I was always focused and partly it may be cultural thing. I came from Israel and, and where it was clear that family was important, at least that's how it was in my mind, that family was very important. And if you want to have a job and a career, to me, that was important too. So to me, I focused on those two things. Those were the two most important things in my life. So I focused on our family. We have three children and, uh, and of course my husband. And um, I focused on that. That was my first priority. And 
and in addition, I focused on my job. So some other things, you know, I would let go. So I would not go with friends to this or that or to, you know, sit in a coffee shop or book club. So, so you know, you, you arrange your time to focus on the things that are important to you. And that's what we did. And there was, of course, some help with daycare or with babysitters. And my mother would come from Israel to help, you know. So it's, it's kind of the usual thing. The good thing these days, there are much more, many more daycares than where at the time when my kids were, you know, my kids are older than you by now, but much more daycare now than used to be then. So that's very helpful to young women. That's very inspiring to hear, to think that you managed around everything and, you know, gave equal importance to both your family and your work life. That's very inspiring. This is something that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode when I introduced you um, to our listeners, that your and Dr. John Bacall's wedding rings have toured around the earth on the Hubble. Yes. And <laughs> I see yeah. that you're wearing that necklace and I'm so I'm excited. wearing them, yes. <laughs> so could you tell our uh, listeners about how that happened? Yes, so John has been, uh, as you mentioned, one of the founders of the Hubble Space Telescope for many years, I think since the 70s. So it's been many, many years that he has pushed and worked and supported the Hubble. And even though when the Hubble was canceled a few times in Congress, he worked very hard together with Lyman Spitzer to reestablish it and keep Hubble alive. Then it came to... I think the early 2000, something like that. Yeah, early 2000, when there was a question about the last service mission to the Hubble with a, with a space shuttle. And NASA, because of the big accident before that, uh, cancel, wanted to cancel it and eventually canceled it. The director of NASA canceled it. And John, uh, my John and the astronaut John Grunsfeld, who then worked at NASA, worked hard together to, to bring it back to life. Because if this, this last service mission would not have gone to Hubble, Hubble would have been dead by now for many years. So they worked very hard together, and John worked very hard with Congress and with the community and with committees to cancel the decision by NASA, and he succeeded they succeeded. So then the servicing mission was getting close to being launched. By then, John knew that the, it, NASA reversed and it would be launched, but he did pass away uh, before, before that, but he knew it would happen. So when I saw the astronaut John Grunsfeld that worked closely with my John, uh, and he went on that mission, the last mission to Hubble, he did a lot of the repairs on the Hubble at the, at the very last time just a wonderful, wonderful person and a wonderful astronaut. He told me that um, John was a big hero to him and he'd like to take something personal up of John when he goes up the last time to Hubble. He said that will be wonderful for him. It will bring John's spirit with him. So I was very moved. I started crying when he told me that. And, and, and then I asked him, well, what type of thing does one send, you know, I know it cannot be anything big. Said, well, some people send a picture or a letter or he said, sometimes some people send something that they wear on their ne necklace. 
So um, I didn't have anything on my lectures, but then I uh, talked to the kids and together we thought, well, I thought, well, maybe I'll send, oh, I was, I was wearing uh, John's wedding ring on my necklace. And I thought, oh, I'll send John's wedding ring. Now that'll be great. Then I talked to my kids and they said, that's a great idea, but why don't you send both of your rings together? And I thought, oh, that's a wonderful idea. So I gave him both of our rings. He took them up to, to, uh, with him to the Hubble, went 200 times in the shuttle around the Earth, and then he brought it back, and now I'm wearing it all the time. Wow, that is such an amazing story. Um, it's, it's very unique, and I'm sure our listeners would agree. I know some people, when I tell, I know people really love that story, and when I tell it, when I share it, some people ask me, or they ask me even at that time, well, aren't you afraid that the wings will get just lost there when they go to space? And I thought that was kind of a funny question, but of course that can happen. I'm sure NASA is very careful, but, uh, and I told them and I didn't even think about it, but I said, well, if they get lost there in space and keep orbiting the earth, what a wonderful place for it to be. I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, that is so true. <laughs> I think now I want to switch a little bit, and since you've brought it up, talk about your experience as a woman in this field, because you've been in this field for a very long time. So how is your overall experience, and how do you think things changed over the past few decades or so? I think I'm very positive about the change. I'm extremely positive about the change, because it may be hard to see the progression when we look at it year to year to year. But when I have this timeline of a few decades, or even if I look at Vera Rubin that we talked about that is longer, you know, maybe five decades or more, then it's an astonishing progress because at that time when I started, and even more so when Vera Rubin started, there was almost no women at all in astronomy, very, very few. You can at least on one hand, women's name that were at least known somehow, you know, Margaret Burbage, Vera Rubin. And then there were some that we know earlier on that really never, never went up the ladder. They did important work like Henrietta, uh, you know, the, the names that we are familiar with. They, they never really made it, although they made big discoveries. Then slow, and when I was a graduate student and then worked, there were a few more women. Virginia Trimble was a student with me. Um, um, Anila Sargent was a student a little bit after me. So, so there, the more, there were a few, a little more, but still very few women. Today, there are so many, it's not 50% yet, but it used to be pretty close to zero. Now we have, I know in our graduate school, we have uh, in astronomy, in our department, we are probably a third women, maybe a bit, even a little more. I'm the director of the undergraduate program. I have 50% women, 50% and so it's, and, and then if you go to conferences, lots of women now, many more faculty that are women every place. I was the first woman faculty in our department one, first one, and that was uh, already like maybe 30 years ago or something. 
So I was the first one. Now we have, I think, four out of about 12. So again, it's not 50%, but it's a big difference. I think there is really good progress. And I think that progress is continuing. And I think at this point, it's not going to take that long be before it's kind of 50-50, that it becomes a non-issue, at least, at least for women. You know, then the question of uh, minorities and, and so on, so that, that also is, will get better, but that's kind of slow. Right. And um, you mentioned how, you know, astronomy was not as common as a field when you were growing up. And I can actually say the same for myself. I grew up in India and uh, I pretty much knew astronomy because of conversations with my parents. Uh, they introduced me to stars. I got encyclopedias and so forth. So why do you think that is? Why are we not introduced to astronomy as much as, you know, we probably should be? That's a good question. It, it should have been introduced. It's a field that excites everybody, young people, students, and the public. So it's a field that is very, very exciting. You know, everybody wants to know about planets and stars and the beginning of the universe. And, you know, so it, it should have been started, uh, um, introduced much earlier. It should have been and should be taught in schools. It's still not taught in high, most high schools few high schools teach it, even in this country. But I think it's, um, it's a smaller field than physics. It's a, it, you know, people sometimes look at it as a subfield of physics. Physics is a much bigger field. Uh, it's about how everything works, whether it's solid state particle physics, nuclear physics. Astrophysics is how the physics of the universe works. So, um, it used to be thought of as a small subfield of physics and physics was much more major. So high school was just to teaching physics, the usual physics, chemistry, biology, and math. A few high school teach, give some course in as astronomy, but not many. But hopefully that will change. Hopefully more will be taught. I think it's a wonderful way to teach science and attract more students to science. Yeah, Israel did not have any astronomy at all. I didn't even know about that field when I grew up or when I went to college. Yeah, and I was gonna say the, the part that I find most exciting as a graduate student is being able to like apply what we learn in classrooms to study yes. actual objects in the universe. Yes. And just to learn more about where we come from, right? Yes, absolutely. So, so what aspects of um, astrophysics do you enjoy the most? Well, what I find about astrophysics that it's just so exciting, you know, all the way, all, all the decades I've been working on it in whatever field I was working on, is just these amazing questions that it can address is, what does the universe, you know, we can stand here on planet Earth and look at the night sky and we just see the blinking stars. And then we ask, well, what's out there? What are the stars made of? What's beyond the stars? And to be able as an astronomer to find answers to this question, I still find mind boggling. I always tell my students, you know, when I teach a class that even though I've been working on it every day for decades now, I still, when I stop by to look back and reflect, I find it unbelievable that we can figure out 
How did the universe begin? There was a big bang that everything is expanding. How old is the universe? How big is the universe? How fast it's expanding? You know, to, to answer all these questions is just amazing that there is dark matter in the universe, dark energy. It, it really is astounding. All we could do is sit here on planet Earth, look with the telescopes, figure out some models and the physics behind and, and, and get all these results that just beyond what I would have expected. The most exciting. Yeah, since you mentioned dark matter and you're a leading researcher on dark matter yourself. Um, so for our audience, you know, dark matter is something that we cannot see directly. So it has to be indirectly detected. Yes. And your research focuses on the location of dark matter in the universe. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about that and also techniques that go behind finding dark matter? Yeah, so dark matter, as we all know, is one of the most fundamental open questions in cosmology, in astrophysics, and in physics. What is the thing that makes, what is a particle that makes a dark matter? And as you say, we cannot see the dark matter. So we can only um, infer it by its gravitational impact and using of the use of Newton's law or general relativity. So the impact is either the rotation curves of spiral galaxies like Vera Rubin did, the motion, or today we can also do gravitational lensing observation that, that distorts background objects just by the gravity, the total mass of a foreground object. So that's how, what we use for observations to measure the mass, the distribution of mass and where it is as far as we can. So in the last few years, I've been working, we first worked to determine for many years how much mass exists in the, how much dark matter exists. And that we determined to be about, uh, correctly, about 25% of the critical density. The, the critical density is a density that is needed to uh, stop the expansion of the universe. So we don't have enough gravity in the universe to stop the expansion. That's why it's continuing. So we worked on that. Now we, we've been working on trying to understand better where is this dark matter distributed? Where is most of the dark matter? We know that it's in galaxies. That's from Vera Rubin and many others over the last 40, 50 years. So we can measure it better now from this gravitational lensing. We also measure it all the way in groups and clusters, and then we can measure it now, all the, and that's what we do, all the way to large scales, cosmic scales of megaparsecs. And what we find is that the dark, we believe that the dark matter is mostly very big halos around galaxies, like Vera Rubin started, but now we see it much, much farther out. So very big halos around galaxies. And then in groups and clusters, when the galaxies come together, they bring all the dark matter with them. But then beyond that, there is not much more. We see a flattening that we reach the edge of the dark matter. So we believe that most of the dark matter just comes with these big halos of galaxies and the groups and clusters come with all this dark matter that the galaxies bring to them, approximately the same amount. Wow, that's quite interesting and insightful. Um, thank you for sharing that. So um, going into your personal journey a little bit, uh, I'm sure all of us have had roadblocks, right? 
So if you can think of one significant roadblock or problem that seemed insurmountable to you and maybe how you overcame it, as well as some takeaways that you had from that experience um, that you'd like to share. Yeah, I, um, I don't know that it was one insurmountable problem, but I can tell you in general, yeah, there are always problems that any kinds of goals up and down. So when I first started, uh, after I finished my PhD, uh, we moved to Princeton and I started as a postdoc and John, my husband, got a professorship at the Institute for Advanced Studies. So that's why we moved to Princeton. And I just finished my PhD. I started as a postdoc. And then, you know, slowly, a few years later, there were no faculty positions. Winston, again, it was many years ago. There were no women. It was very small. It was not, they were very nice to me, but it was not all that open and welcoming to women at those days. But they were very nice to me. I should not say anything that uh, is not correct, but there were no faculty positions. So I started on a research letter. So it's not a faculty, but it, so, you know, it was a struggle. It was not a regular faculty position. Eventually, I did get a faculty position. I first went to Space Telescope Institute, and then they recruited me back to Princeton on the faculty. And like I say, I was the first woman faculty. So um, again, that was, I don't know that it's a struggle, but it was clearly bumps in the road. It happens less these days than it did then. There are more faculty, women faculty now everywhere than we had then. But it took a while to get a faculty position uh, as a woman. But I never, I never looked at it in a, in a terribly negative way. I just said, well, let's, let's do what I can. I enjoy what I'm doing. I'll do the best science that I can. I'll see what the next opportunities are. I, did, I was offered a faculty position at a nearby university to start an astro program. And at that time I decided I had two little kids at home and a third one on the way. And I decided I didn't want all this commute. And I liked Princeton was very good uh, department and environment. So I decided at that time not to take it, but stay. And I took the chance and at the end it worked out fine. So you just have to take one step at a time. Now, my main advice and I'm asking I'm being asked it all the time by students and postdocs and young, young uh, uh, faculty, mostly many women, but also men. My main advice is just to be persistent. If you love what you do, don't give up. Don't give up easily. Don't give up on the first, on the first uh, bump in the road that you come across. You know, think about Vera Rubin. She had so many bumps in the road much more than I had. She never gave up. She always took it slowly one day at a time. Uh, and she started very slowly. So is don't give up, certainly don't give up on you know one or two or even three bumps in the road. Just persist and if you love it, let it go, just continue and keep your eye open on what the options and the possibilities are and persist. That is great advice. And my next question for you was going to be, what is your advice for students? So that is just perfect. Yeah. You kind of talked about what their mindset should be when approaching um, their career or their life. 
Well, to female, I, I think the, the, the persistence and don't listen to negative comments. I mean, you along the way, you'll hear some negative comments from whoever, colleagues, advisors, peers, uh, people that you, you listen to your talk. Don't listen to the science if they bring any negative comments and think about it, but don't listen to any other personal negative comments. Just ignore it. Just keep doing what you enjoy doing and keep moving with it. If you do good work, it will pay off at the end. So, so that's a general. For women, well, in addition to that, I would say for women is I'm frequently asked, as you asked about work, uh, family uh, uh, balance. And all I can say is that it's possible. Uh, don't think that if you go into an academic career, maybe it's harder these days than it was in my days. I don't know. It's maybe more competitive. It's a bigger field. But, but it is possible to do. Uh, you know, I have three children and a wonderful married life. Vera had four children and a wonderful married life. So it's only possible to do. Uh, but you have to... You have to know how to balance your time, how to budget your time. You have to focus on the things that are most important for you. And if family is important to you, which was for me and for Vera Rubin, then we put family and the, and the career as the two main thing. And that's where we put the focus on. And yeah. of course, it's always important, but that's how to know ahead of time. To, to know how to select your spouse who will be supportive. That goes without saying you need, and, and my, John was extremely supportive and wonderful and helpful. So that also is very important to have a very supportive spouse. Yes, thank you so much for that amazing advice. And I'm sure you know our listeners will really benefit from it. I'm going to end with this question. Where do you think the future of astronomy is heading? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, it's always hard to predict the future. Uh, I think the, there is still a huge amount of opportunities in astronomy to understand our universe. Uh, I work in cosmology and I think many of the topics I've been working on determining how much dark matter, how is it distributed, what else is in the universe, a lot of that is and has been answered just recently. Some of the work we did on that was part of these discoveries on how much dark matter and so on. Um, so we know all of that. We have a standard model of cosmology, the Lambda CDM. However, uh, we still don't know whether, we know that that model describes the universe as we know, as, as it is, we know that's much how, how much dark matter and dark energy and so on, but we really don't know what those things are. And that's fundamental. We don't know what the dark matter particles are. We don't even know, although that's unlikely, that maybe it's not dark matter. Some people say maybe we need to change general relativity a little bit. That's very unlikely, I think, but it's still an open question in some people's minds. I think that's very unlikely. There are more and more evidence that that's not the case. 
but we don't know what this particle is and it makes up most of the mass of the universe. So that's just, I don't know what the, I hope we will know the answer to that in the next decade or so by detecting the particles. And there are many experiments to try and detect the particles, but it has not yet been detected. So uh, similarly, the other very important open question in cosmology, and I'm just talking about cosmology now, but there are many more uh, things, is what is dark energy? We know that the universe expansion is accelerating, it's going faster and faster. Well, there's some new force, some new field that makes it expand faster. We don't yet know what it is. It could be a cosmological constant, could be something different. Very, very fundamental. It's a whole new force and we don't know what it is and why it is there. So that may take longer than a decade to figure it out, but many people are working on that. And then there are many topics like in planets, exoplanets, finding planets around other stars. You know, 20 years ago, we didn't know any also, didn't know about planets around other stars. We always knew it clearly should exist. Now we have a few thousand that were detected planets around other stars. So now we have enough statistics to try and figure out in more detail, what are the properties of the planets? How how were they formed? How was our solar system formed? We don't fully, we understand a little bit, but not fully. So uh, that's a whole big field now that attracts a lot of young, uh, young astronomers, because I think it's a very exciting field to figure out how planet systems form. Uh, and, and are there other planets like we with possibly life on it? The answer is most likely yes. You know, I don't think we are the only ones out of billions and billions and billions of planets. So, you know, those are just some of the uh, open possibilities, exciting, but there are so many more. How stars are formed, how galaxies are formed, you know, there are many, many questions. Yeah, I, I really hope that any young students listening to this from you feel more inspired to be, you know, in the field and in scientists in general. So, Dr. Bakal, it was wonderful yeah. talking to you today, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be here with us on the show and to share your insights and advice. Um, I just hope that, you know, the listeners um, enjoy it as much as I did. I had well, a thank you. I, I, I enjoyed it very much too. I always get excited talking about, about the field and, and the, the interest and the possibilities that exist in the field, because I think it's um, an up and coming field, still a very open field, even though we have made real big progress in the last few decades you know, look at the big discoveries of dark matter, dark energy, it's all in the last very few decades, huge discoveries. So many more discoveries are on their way, I'm sure. Yeah, this is wonderful. Thank you so much again. Sure, very nice, very nice talking with you and very nice to see you again. Yes, you too. And good luck with a new, new academic year. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. So that is our first episode. Um, I really hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks for tuning in and I hope to see you here again. Mm -hmm.